Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. You are listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and I'm excited about today. I'm working on it all morning for you. We've got uh, Joe Dallas coming on in just a minute. He's written a book called Christians in a Cancel Culture. Looking forward to that. And my friend Jim Burns has written a book called Have Serious Fun. So that is what the program is today. I can hardly wait. I've been in Psalms, and Psalm 116, verses 1 and 2 says, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. I love that. Anyway... Our first guest is Joe Dallas. He's an author, speaker, and counselor who speaks all around the country. He's the founder of Genesis Biblical Solutions in Tustin, California. He's written many books on human sexuality from a Christian perspective. His new book is called Christians in a Cancel Culture. Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. Yeah, I'm intrigued. Your book is intriguing, and I'm, I'm fascinated with you, so I'd love to learn a little bit about you. Yeah, the the book is really an outgrowth of where I've been. Uh, like you said, I'm just a little old counselor. I didn't start off to uh, take on something as controversial <laughs> as cancel culture. Yeah, you stepped uh, into about, it. Yeah, I did. You know, accidentally, uh, I, I started about 34 years ago a ministry here in Southern California uh, just to offer some biblical counseling to Christian men who are dealing with different sexual issues. Uh, maybe a problem with pornography or adultery mm-hmm. or homosexuality or some kind of sexual behavior outside God's will, and uh, they're coming for help. Well, that that's, doesn't seem like it should be so controversial, but I found that as the years went by, uh, ministries like mine were getting more and more pushback from the culture, mm-hmm. more and more people in academia, in the media, in the entertainment industry were saying, oh, that is so wrong. Uh, the biblical viewpoint that you espouse is so wrong, and it's so damaging, and you need to be stopped. And then more and more, I was kind of feeling like Nehemiah's guys, okay? You know, they're they're basically there to rebuild, but then they had to start um, holding a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other, because mm. there were so many people trying to dismantle or come against what they were trying to rebuild. And finally, in the last few years, uh Oh, I got to say, especially last year, Bill. I mean, it seems like we lost our collective minds in 2020 uh, between COVID and the rioting and the demonstrations. There was this wave of intolerance for traditional viewpoints on sexuality, marriage, abortion, racism, progressive Christianity, and more and more believers were feeling like, "Wow, it's almost getting dangerous to say where you stand on these issues." And it became clearer to me that we got a couple of things happening. We've got, on the one hand, believers who know where they stand. They know the biblical position on these things. But what they don't know is when to stand. When should you speak up? Mm-hmm. How to stand? How should you say what you want to say? What can you expect to happen when you do take a stand? And which hills are, are hills that you die on? And which ones are ones that you just go, oh, whatever, we can agree to disagree? That's why I wrote the book Christians in a Cancel Culture, because 
we're in the middle of a crusade, Bill. I mean, this crusade is out to convert the infidels. And in this case, the infidels are those of us who hold traditional views on these key issues. And the crusade, which I would call cancel culture, it's a crusade, it's basically saying you guys have got to be converted or you guys have got to be silenced. Hmm. So, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are feeling that. I mean, we've got Christian parents who have a daughter come home from college and say, Mom, Dad, I've come to realize that you're a couple of bigots. Have you repented yet? Hmm. Or a son who comes home and says, Mom, Dad, I'm going to transition into being a woman, and I demand that you come into agreement with that decision or I won't have anything to do with you. And so a lot of Christians are feeling like, wow, this is really hitting home. How do I have a conversation? That's what I wanted to do was write a book to help people be equipped to have these conversations because like it or not, we're going to have them. We really will. Yeah. Joe, you say in the book, and I appreciate this, you said this was written with a more personal goal in mind, that of equipping believers to provide reasonable answers and have effective dialogue with family members, close friends, and associates who take issue with their belief system. And at Faith Radio here, we have the highest view of Jesus, the highest view of Scripture, and we are without compromise. Well, this is critical. I mean, this is a time for more clarity than ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, And unfortunately, it's a time we're also seeing more compromise than ever. I think a lot of believers are intimidated. That's one problem. But I I think, Bill, a lot of believers also have a mistaken notion of what our job description is. Uh, is Is it really our job description to make sure that nobody finds us offensive, nobody feels uncomfortable with what we teach, Uh, where we have to basically dance for everybody else's tune, or are we ambassadors? Because, you know, if we're ambassadors, that means somebody sent us, and that means if we are ambassadors who were sent, our primary responsibility is to the person who sent us. I mean, for sure, we want to get along with people. We want to be good neighbors and good friends. We we hope to have respectful relationships with people, and we don't want to be jerks. But at the end of the day, it matters less how we are received and more how faithful we are to the person who sent us and the message he sent us with. That's what matters. Yeah, Joe, I was scribbling down some notes for this uh, interview, and I wrote down something I I believe you said, whenever truth is told, someone is inconvenienced. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, we, we see that in the Gospels, don't we? There are a lot of things Jesus taught that were inconvenient, uh, were inconvenient. Offensive. To people, yeah, and and not because he was trying to be offensive. No. I mean, God forbid we should be just so deliberately offensive for the sake of being offensive. That's, that's kind of sick. But the fact is, if we are clear, you bet you there are people who are going to be inconvenienced by what we say, because there are movements that are trying to legitimize and and push even many things that are blatantly unbiblical, that go against what I call created intent, our creator's intention for the human experience. We cannot, with any kind of good conscience or integrity, say that we go along with these new redefinitions and these new concepts. And so we are having to basically say no. It's sort of like what Peter said, hey, whether it's right to obey you or God, you know, judge for yourselves. But on my part, we're not going to but speak the things that we've seen and heard. We have to. And in the course of doing that, yes, Mm -hmm. there will be people who are offended and inconvenienced because, face it, Christianity is an inconvenience to people who have certain types of agenda. And at the risk of sounding political, which I don't mean to, um, 
Christianity, when it is lived out in a robust way, in a healthy way, it is not friendly to big government. It is not friendly to any system of government that wants to control people, that wants to tell people what they may say or where their primary allegiances should be, which is one of the reasons, of course, as we speak, we have brothers and sisters that are being ruthlessly hunted down in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. because they hold to beliefs that tell them their fidelity is ultimately to Jehovah God, not to any government, not to the Taliban, not to any particular human leader. So anybody who wants control over people is going to find Christianity to be very inconvenient because although Christianity teaches us to be good citizens, it teaches us also this kingdom that we're in now, uh, it's not his kingdom. His kingdom is not of this world. Our allegiance is not to this world, and it's not to any sovereign in this world. Our allegiance ultimately is to God only. Mm-hmm. Joe Dallas is my guest. He's written a book called Christians in a Cancel Culture. Joe, when I think of the, let's just call it the road of life, and the fact we're on it right now, because you and I are, are both alive, let's see. On the guardrail to the right is the word truth, and on the guardrail to the left is the word grace. So how do we balance those two so the cars don't go off the road? Yeah, we've got to get past the idea that those two are somehow contradictory, that they're mutually exclusive, because, of course, they are not. All my life, I've believed they were, Bill. I mean, I've always thought, okay, do you want me to be nice to you or do you want me to tell you the truth? I can't possibly do both, you know, and that's that's not true. Uh, John said that Jesus was, is full of grace and truth. He also said that if you say you abide in him, you ought to walk as he walked, full of grace and truth. Look, I can respect someone, love them, show them affection and kindness. And still, as the situation demands or the opportunity allows, I can still speak truth, even if that truth is something they don't want to hear. And I will not sacrifice grace in doing so. The fact is, if there is no truth, there is no grace, because Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 says love rejoices in the truth. Mm-hmm. So something I say, I know it sounds like a bumper sticker, but I really believe it, is uh, clarity is charity. Yeah, Clarity is charity. Uh, where there is real grace, there will be truth. Now, where there is Christ-like approach, a Christ-like approach to speaking the truth, we'll speak it with empathy. I mean, let me make this personal just for a minute, okay? No, please. When I was 16 years old, a young woman who I was dating was witnessing to me. Uh, She was a recent uh, convert to Christianity. She was on fire for the Lord. I was pretty openly gay. I, I had told her, I'm a gay man. We can go out and have a good time, but I'm attracted to men. This is where I'm at. She openly witnessed to me about the claims of Jesus Christ and about the requirements, what he would require of me. If I were to follow him and she she was as kind and loving and gentle as could be, the last thing I would have needed would be for somebody to say, oh, you know, that's disgusting. You're you're an abomination in God's sight and you make me sick or or even to talk down to me. I mean, these days, most people don't talk like that, but there's still kind of the sense of, oh, well, that's one of the worst things you could be or one of the greatest things you could commit. There's, there is empathy and, and consideration when people speak the truth if they're doing it in a Christ-like way. But. Nobody is commit, uh, converted to the truth if the truth isn't made clear. You know, we, we can't see people converted to truth if we are not speaking truth clearly. And, you know, Bill, you look at the book of Acts, listen to the way those guys preached. Paul, Peter, um, Philip, you know, Stephen, my gosh, you might not have liked what those guys said, but darn it, you'd have known what they said. 
you would never have walked away from those sermons and thought, gee, I wonder where he stands. <laughs> that's you know? so true. That's why I say clarity is charity. We need the, the church to really recommit herself to clarity, clarity on the basics, because what I see uh, looking through the book of Acts is urgency. There was a sense of urgency there. You know, people, in, in the eyes of the early believers, people were dead or alive. They were saved or unsaved. And the critical message was, there is a way to life, and I want you to know what it is. That's what we need more of today. Yeah. Joe, if clarity is charity is not a bumper sticker on your car, I'm going to put a patent pending on it right now and send you 10%. Oh, that's big of you. Well, 8%, 8%. <laughs> yeah, For change. my own thing, yeah. yeah. Thank you. You're, you're quite a deal broker, I tell you. <laughs> Joe Dallas is my guest. His book is Christians in a Cancel Culture, Speaking the Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold, Faith, Hope, and Clarity in a special repeat performance. I am meeting Joe Dallas for the first time. He's on the program. His new book is Christians in a Cancel Culture, Speaking the Truth and Grace in a Hostile World. During the break, Joe, I was thinking of, uh, boy, you go into the doctor and the doctor says, boy, you've got some skin cancer here. Let me give you some Flintstone vitamins. It wouldn't be a good doctor. <laughs> no, and can you imagine that doctor saying, oh, gosh, I don't want to tell this man what he doesn't want to hear because him liking me is more important than me doing my job. I could ser- what kind of doctor would that be? I could seriously ruin his day if I tell him the truth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so basically I will allow him to go untreated I will um, basically tell him that uh, what is unhealthy is healthy, just so that I can still be on good terms with him. I mean, nobody would would call that anything less than malpractice. But what are we as as ministers of truth if we are uh, basically afraid to give people the full counsel of God? Why, uh, I remember Paul told the Ephesian elders, look, I my... uh, I am free of the blood of any man because I did give you the full counsel of God. Now, that tells me, conversely, you are guilty and you have blood on your hands if you did not give people the full counsel of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm not making fun of Flintstone vitamins. They grew me into the big, strong man I am today. <laughs> One of my favorite cartoons when I was a kid. That dates me, but it really was. I uh, know. I loved it, too. So, um you talk about cancel culture as a virus. Why? Because it's something that spreads. You know, a lot of movements are more centralized. They've got key leaders, and the orders come down from headquarters and so forth. This is a little different. This is something that people are catching all over the place, kind of like COVID. It's hard to even know where you got it because it's everywhere. Mm. Well, I think the same is true of cancel culture. It teaches beliefs that people are susceptible to for a couple of reasons, Bill. One, I think that within the church, um, now let me backtrack a little. We have some fine, so many fine churches, so many responsible, gifted ministers who are feeding the flock faithfully. 
I don't want to for a minute suggest that the whole church is in error and needs to repent. But we do have a very broad problem of biblical ignorance. And where you have biblical ignorance, you're going to basically have the immune system broken down. Hmm. Because when people are biblically grounded, they are not susceptible to errors. When they are not biblically grounded, they are susceptible to those errors. And and so their immune system is broken down. They catch the virus. That's Hmm. one reason that people, I think, are susceptible. And another is people want a cause to believe in. They really do. So even among non-believers, there's a desire to be part of something noble, to fight the oppressor mm-hmm. and to defend the oppressed. Yeah, And I think people are giving them that with cancel culture. Joe, you write in your book, uh, Christians in a Cancel Culture, that we ignore history's lessons to our peril. What do you mean? Even in recent history, we have uh, what I would say relatively recent history. We have the monstrosity we call the Holocaust. Now, I know we shouldn't pull that out too easily because it's kind of become cliche. Anytime we think something is evil, we go, oh, Hitler's Germany. But, you know, the fact is the German people were, via a carefully crafted propaganda machine, they were convinced that a certain group was dangerous and lethal And because they were such evil creatures, the Jewish population, they should not be afforded the same civility and basically the same rights as other people. And when you have taught people that, then you are able, uh, with impunity, to openly persecute them. Um, Now, I do not think we should be quick to cry persecution, and I don't think that we should be too quick to compare ourselves to other victims. But here's the problem, Bill. If we allow ourselves to be marginalized the way the Nazi machine marginalized the Jewish population, if we allow ourselves to be intimidated into silence, then we are not going to be able to do what we've been commissioned to do. Our main commission here has to do with expression. We need to preach the gospel. We need to make disciples. Man, you cannot do that if you cannot speak. And you cannot speak redemptively if you cannot speak from the whole Word of God. Mm -hmm. So for those reasons, I think we do have to resist these efforts to silence the Christian voice. Yeah. Joe, let me read something from Galatians, and I would like you to respond. I I love these couple of verses. I'm astonished that you so quickly are deserting the one who has called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. You know, just last week I was reading an article by a minister in a denomination, which I believe has gone apostate. I really do. And um, this particular minister was talking about how she would never again quote the words of the Great Commission, because those, those words, the commandment to preach the gospel, were uh, essentially racist, And they were essentially um, words that led to totalitarianism and to a narrow view of God. And I thought, lady, you are fulfilling what Paul said. Another gospel is being preached. Now, progressive Christianity, which I talk about in my book, is really no Christianity at all. But it is a revision of Christianity dressed up like Christianity with religious jargon similar to Christianity, 
But when you look at what it actually teaches, it denies the um, uh, exclusivity of Christ and that it says there are many ways to God, just not just through Jesus, and thereby denies the necessity of the cross and denies the existence of hell. Well, for heaven's sake, that is something. It's not Christianity, but it is some kind of a belief system. And uh, this, I think, is a particularly insidious movement because it is infiltrating the church more and more. I think, again, Bill, because we mistakenly think that niceness and love are necessarily the same thing, and they are not. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, Joe, when I, I think about the cross and the fact that my sin uh, sent Jesus to the cross, your sin sent Jesus to the cross, it's troubling when there are churches today that are um, trying to diminish sin because they don't want people to feel bad about themselves. See, and that's the point. Jesus himself said, well, the people who are healthy don't need a physician. So what are we basically doing? We are at odds with what Jesus came to do. He came to help us to understand that, yes, we are valuable, for God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. But why? So that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What's he saying? You're perishing. (laughs) You know, the gospel is very affirming in that it affirms our value in God's sight. But it ain't no compliment, is it? I mean, it it says, in essence, on your own, you cannot make it into God's presence. The cross was necessary. And if you think about it, Jesus himself prayed, if there's any other way, let me out of this. Well, obviously, there was no other way. And uh, so it's it's very denigrating to the sacrifice he made on the cross to suggest that the cross was not necessary. It clearly was. Mm-hmm. And as we have dialogue with friends and, and co-workers and neighbors and everybody else, I love the way you close your book. You say that God is not mocked and we are still more than conquerors. And our hope continues to be built on nothing less uh, because as long as the people of God are ready to speak the Word of God, and as long as the Spirit of God is ready to confirm the Word of God, then the people of God never need to fear that the Word of God will be silenced. Exactly. I mean, look, we have to rethink what we are rejoicing in, Bill. Um, if, if I am, now let me, again, full disclosure, I have very strong political views, I have my idea of who should be in the White House, of who should be in Congress, of who should be the governor. I I really do, and I care very much about that. However, my hope and joy cannot be founded on on, uh, who is in political power or whether or not the the culture I'm in is amenable to Christianity or whether or not Mm -hmm. people around me are living righteously. i got to be figuring I'm running a race. While I'm running this race, i got to keep my eyes on the prize. I am commissioned to fulfill my course. Amen. Joe, thank you. And I have to find my joy in that. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the program. My pleasure. Yeah. Joe Dallas has been my guest. Christians in a Cancel Culture is the name of his book. We will take a short break and be back with more in just a minute. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. 
So nice to have Jim Burns on the show. I met Jim about 35 years ago, maybe. He's president of, of Homeward. He speaks all the time to thousands of people around the world. Um, he's written all kinds of books and resources. Uh, he's done everything pretty cool, pretty well. I just think he's a great resource. I'm glad to have him on. Um, I hope he remembers me. I, I, I carried him from a burning house once. He probably forgot that. But, Jim, welcome to the show. <laughs> um I do remember. I think, yeah, it was a burning house, but I don't know why, but you were in your underwear. I just, you know, it's radio, they can't see that, but well, what can I, I say? You know, I was, work, I was working hard, so. So, cool new book, Have Serious Fun and 12 Other Principles yes. to Make Each Day Count. You've got my attention. You know me. I, I'm all for this topic. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, I am, too, and I think there was a season in my life where I, uh, I got too serious. You know, my daughter said, uh, you know, other people said when you were a youth pastor, dad, a long time ago, you know, that you were fun and funny. What, you know, what basically she <laughs> stopped right there instead of saying what happened. But yeah. I realized, you know what, I think she's right. I need to get back into that. And I, I remembered years ago that I, when I was getting my PhD, I studied traits of a healthy family. I actually wrote on it. And one of the top traits was play and fun and laughter. And it doesn't just have to be for four-year-olds, but we have to be more serious about it, meaning we need to be intentional. And uh, part of that, this book, it's one of the, you know, one of the principles for me that I just wanted to hand to my kids. I never meant to write a book. I was just trying to give them some good principles. And I started speaking on it and everybody wanted me to write on it. So there you have it. Yeah. Tell me about that rather um, uncomfortable uh, appointment with the doctor. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he called me and he said, you need to come in this afternoon. And I went, wow, okay. And he said, and bring your wife. Well, that's never good news. And so Kathy and I, you know, come in and I said, I think we're going to get some bad news. And he said right away, he had no bedside manner, but he's a wonderful doctor. He said, you have cancer. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that. And I found myself at the City of Hope where I actually was today because my wife is having cancer surgery on Friday. So this is the second time around for us, believe it or not. Um, And in my story, you know, I found uh, that the cancer caused me to do some deep, thinking, not just about my own life, but deep thinking about what do I want to pass on to my kids? What are those phrases, principles of life, lessons that I've learned along the way that I wanted you know, them to know? And, and I wrote them down the night before. I got up in the middle of the night before the surgery, and I wrote down things that were in my head kind of already. I mean, this wasn't some you know, big moment where a big light came on and, you know, I started writing these things, thus saith the Lord, much more things that had been the principles of my life that had kind of held me. And I I was like, wow, this is, I need to (laughs) not only pass this on, but I need to be reminded of this. And during that time, so the cancer, which I never thought I was going to die. I think my, my mother-in-law did. (laughs) She said to Kathy, she said, Jim, and you have had a wonderful marriage. And you know what? He's, you're young enough, Kathy, that if Jim dies, you know, you could marry somebody else. <laughs> you got to love the mother-in-law that, right? But, uh, but those were really, you know, cancer got me thinking about a lot of stuff. And part of it was fun, thinking about fun. You know, how do, how do we as a family have more fun? How do Kathy and I lean into the fun factor in our marriage? Because I actually think play is often the missing ingredient. It's the factor that brings people closer together. It reduces stress. And so that was one principle that I wanted to, you know, pass on to uh, to family. And, you know, I, I actually think it's been a life changer for me. It's funny. I've said to people, I hope somebody reads this book, but if they don't, it's the book that changed my life. So 
<laughs> here you go. Yeah. You know, Scott, that kind of thing. Yeah. So when you talk about the, your own family and the, and the glue that holds you together, and you, you're quick to talk about how important fun, laughter, joy is in your yeah. your family, um, yeah. the glue of your family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's a lot of times we think about, like, think about the end of the year. Um, you know, we'll, a lot of times, a lot of families do, we have forever, you know, we'll sit around the table and say, what are the you know, great things that happened with our family? What are the positives? You know, what, what, what can we kind of thank God for? And, you know, no one ever says it's the, you know, three hour zoom meeting or, <laughs> you know, writing checks at the table that we weren't sure if we had enough money. What we write about it are the things that were fun as a family, the things that we connected with. And so I've, I've said for years in marriage conferences, that sometimes play connects you better than sitting at that table and having the, you know, heart to heart or the big serious conversation about what's you know wrong with our marriage or what's wrong with our kids or what's with our kids, what's wrong. Um, but sometimes play causes it to kind of open up. And I found that with my, all three of my daughters, I have all girls, so no hormones or drama in my life. But um, <laughs> with my girls, um, I have found that that's when we connect is sometimes when we're just having fun and fun could be, it doesn't have to be, you know, watching a comedy movie, it could be having fun food. Um, we live by the beach, you know, having a stroll on the beach, um, you know, things that just whatever causes us to, you know, make our heart smile. I have one daughter who always goes, dad, we've got, tw-. she lives by us. Dad, we've got 20 minutes. I'm coming by. We're going to watch the sunset. Oh, wow. You know what? We have, we have amazing conversations watching that sunset periodically, um, usually on her, uh, dime, not mine in terms of her coming in and, you know, getting me in her car and going over and whatever. Well, the dime then turns into dollars because then she'll go, Hey, you want to get something to eat? And I'll go, sure. And then I buy, of course, (laughs) but, you know, doing that, you know, having that, you know, we'll sit and talk and, you know, we've had some pretty great connections over a sunset. Now, now people think of that as, they don't think of that as play, but it kind of is, it's, it's fun for us to do. So yeah, that's that's an important ingredient. Yeah. Jim Burns is my guest. His book is Have Serious Fun and 12 Other Principles to Make Each Day Count. Uh, talk about thank therapy. Yeah, well, that's a biggie for me. Uh, in fact, I practiced it today. Oh. Uh, thank therapy for me, the Bible says, in everything you do, give thanks, for this is God's will for you. So first of all, the Bible is God's will, but very few times does it say it. And so this every, in everything you do, give thanks. I'll be honest with you. I mean, that's, that at the beginning for me was really hard because am I supposed to thank God for my mom's death? Am I supposed to thank God for, you know, financial problems? Am I supposed to thank God for the three divorces my brothers went through in one in nine month period? And then I read it again and it doesn't say for, it says in. And I realized that I can be thankful in my mom's cancer and her death caused, um, she's now not in pain. It caused our family to come together. My dad eventually became a Christian and he wasn't. Um, and it was through my mom, uh, and through her death. So again, I'm not, I still can't say thank you, God, for mom dying. I wish she still was alive. But the fact is, is there are reasons to be thankful in that we, and actually I was in a small, my small group meets every Tuesday and we meet, uh, we've been doing it for 21 years now. And, Today, we were talking about during COVID, what are we thankful in? And it was pretty amazing because, you know, all of these guys, there's five of us, and all of them, I know their story well, and there's been some health issues, and there's been some other kind of things. Uh, Three of the five have had COVID. And yet, when we talked about what we were thankful in during this time, it it was remarkable. I mean, it was kind of like we had this spiritual moment, and it was practicing thank therapy. So what to me that says is that 
you know, my circumstance may not change, but my attitude can, and that makes all the difference in the world. And my attitude changes for me when I practice thank therapy. So I, I write, and I did it today, I write down reasons why I'm thankful in my journal. I, acts, adoration, I'll write some scripture. I write confession. I'll write, I'll confess some sins. And then thankful, you know, the T for acts, the T stands for thankful. And I, I'll spend time writing, and it's never really all these sexy things. It's just simply things that that are part of my life. I mean, I wrote about my wife and my kids and my wife has uh, uh, breast cancer and they caught it really, really early. So today I've spent some time thanking God, not for her breast cancer, but thanking God for the incredible way that she kind of dodged a billet because yeah, she's going to have surgery, but it's not going to be because it's all over her body. It's, you know, they're going to get that surgery and we're going to move on and it's going to be fine. And I was just thankful to God in that situation so that's thank therapy, and and I think when you do it, you pre- when I first started doing this, it was uh, it had to become a habit. But the interesting thing is, is you can form a habit in three weeks. You can form a solidify it in another three weeks. So now it's just kind of a part more of my life, and it's it's really been helpful. It's something that I'll often share with uh, young people in ministry or couples or um, even kids. Um, you know what? Try it. And I've never had anybody come back to me and say, wow, this didn't work for me. They they really do say that it, again, their circumstance may not change, but it's their attitude. And, and that really does make the difference. So, yeah, that's practicing yeah. thank therapy. Yeah. Well, Jim, have you ever written down in thank therapy the radio host that carried you from a burning house? Or Absolutely. Not... In his underwear. Oh, good. You, you know, I, <laughs> I'm going to tomorrow. Oh, good. I will do good. that tomorrow. Good. I, I promise you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I love uh, this quote you've got from Vince Lombardi in your book, uh, Fatigue Makes Cowards of Us All. Right. And uh, right. the, the lesson four is if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Yeah. Well, exactly. And it's funny. I spoke on that yesterday or uh, Sunday in Memphis. And uh, and I used that quote that fatigue. I said that great theologian Vince Lombardi and the people all laughed, um, but they all knew who he was. It seems like. Um, but you know, I think a lot of times it's this breathless pace in which we live our lives mm-hmm. that really takes us down. And all over America, I used to think it was just us crazies who live in Southern California, or I have a daughter who lives in New York City, or you know, people who are in Atlanta. Where it's everywhere that you know. The, I think we're too busy, and I actually think that it. Um, you know, when we're fatigued, I'm a lousy husband. I'm a lousy father when I'm fatigued. You know, I'm a lousy Christ follower. And uh, the if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Actually, a friend of mine, when I graduated from grad school in, at Princeton in the 70s, he wrote me a note and he said, Jim, we missed you at graduation. Well, I wasn't the one who would stay and celebrate. I was on my way to go work at a church and I was excited about being with students because I was a student ministry person. And so I missed it. I'm, and, and he said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And it was prophetic for me, meaning, you know, I'm not the one who's going to be in the arms of another woman. I'm not going to embezzle money. I am going to be so busy doing, quote, unquote, important things that I miss the most important things. And so, you know, both that phrase, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And even what and the Vince Lombardi quote just, you know, just threw me because I went, wow, he's, he is so right. And we've got to figure out how to do it. You know, we can't move to Wyoming and live in a, in a, a commune. We've got to figure out how to do it here now, and uh, and make it make it happen. And that takes some real discipline uh, and courage. And and I think sometimes parents are allowing their kids, um, or they're allowing their own lives to be so busy out of control that they 
they don't have any margin in their life. And, you know, it affects every aspect of their life. And I think we have to ruthlessly eliminate busyness and ruthlessly eliminate hurry. When you've got so much busyness in your life, sometimes I think you don't realize life as you're living it. You only see it yeah. in the rearview mirror. Yeah, no, you're right. And that's, you're, a, horrible, you're so, that's a horrible thing. Yeah, no, no, you're right. You know, the, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I took a real short trip. It was about four days, and we went up the California coast. And, uh, and again, she had just gotten the news that she had cancer, and so we were reflecting upon that. But what happened was we said, gosh, we didn't know we needed to take a nap in the afternoon. <laughs> and all we did, we took long walks along the coast. We ate fun food, some romance. We won't get into that. No <laughs> fires burning, so nobody had to carry me out of the, you know, out of the place. Um, and you know what? It was awesome. It, it was in that, in those moments, and if people would have said, what did you do? You know, we, we read, we prayed, we, we had wonderful time, and yet we kind of just let it all, we just slowed it down. And in that time, we kind of, you know, were rejuvenated. I, I, I said to Kathy as we were driving back, I go, I really feel rejuvenated. It was only four days. But I said, I really feel rejuvenated. And she goes, I do too. I love that. You know, Jim, what, yeah. sometimes when you are overloaded with stress and things are really tough in your life, Sometimes the most practical advice to anybody is, uh, how's your diet? Are you getting any exercise and are you sleeping? Because if the right. answers are no, no, and no, you got trouble. No, I'm, you know what? I'm, I'm taking notes on you right now because that's really good. You're right. That's 100%. You're yeah, right. it's pretty simple, but it can be pretty, uh, pretty straightforward. Let me take a little break. Yeah. Jim Burns is my guest. Have Serious Fun is the name of his book and 12 Other Principles to Make Each Day Count. When we come back, I'm going to ask him of the 12 which one is his, his favorite. We'll be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. I'm back with Jim Burns. You know him from Homeward been on the radio forever. He's written a book called Have Serious Fun, among others, 12 Other Principles to Make Each Day Count. Do you have a favorite principle, Jim? Well, that's like asking if I have a favorite child. That's true. You know, Do you? Um, but and, uh, you know what? There were days with my kids where I would never tell them this, but one might be the favorite and one might not be the favorite for yeah. that moment. Um, not as much that way now that they're older. But, you know, I would say for today, um, mine is, is family matters more than work. Um, I work. I mean, I work hard and, and whatnot, but I realize that um, it, when it comes to priorities, that long after I'm gone, I, nobody's going to be thinking about my work. They're going to be thinking about my family, and the legacy comes with family. And I had to continue to ask, especially during that cancer time, was am I giving Kathy and am I giving my kids only my emotional scraps? Because I'm not doing that at work. I'm not giving work my emotional scraps. And what I found was that there needed to be some tweaks within the the family. And I, you know, I speak and teach on family. So, but I realized I needed to make sure I was putting God first, then marriage, then children, then my vocation. And so the little, you know, chapter on that basically is saying, um, 
And I came from a dysfunctional family. So it basically is saying, no, family matters more than your work. That doesn't mean that you don't work. It just simply means that, uh, yes, you can overcome family, negative family patterns. You know, I came from a dysfunctional family. So my family was, you know, pretty broken when I became a Christian. I had to, you know, the Bible talks about you either repeat or recover the sins of the you know, past of, the, of your past to the third and fourth generation. And I need to do some recovering. And so that meant I needed to, to do the work to recover. And I'm, I'm really, really, really glad that um, both Kathy and I figured out together a long time ago that uh, that family was more important than work. And uh, now we kind of get both. I mean, we love our work and we love our calling and we love what we do at Homeward and what Homeward does way beyond us. But you know, it's the family that's the most important. You know, when on Friday, when Kathy's, you know, going under uh, uh, at the City of Hope for surgery, it'll be the family that'll, that will be around her. It'll be the family that will call, um, you know, and that's important for me to remember because there have been times where I've put my work ahead of, of and, and the way I put work ahead sometimes, Bill, was just simply that my, um, you know, I, again, I, I gave, I was giving my work my all and I, I could only give Kathy or my kids, my emotional scraps, because I didn't have it. And uh, it doesn't mean that family is perfect, and it doesn't mean that you can't. There are times where it needs to be a place where you just go, I'm, I'm dust tonight, you know, I, I can't give anything. Fine, that's fine, but you just can't do it all the time. Yeah, so when people work super hard, and like what I'm hearing you say, Jim, is you would get home and many nights your family would get leftover Jim. Yeah, you know what? I'm not even sure they knew that. Okay. But yes, definitely. And, and I think early on in our marriage, we made a decision to have a non-negotiable date night. But in the book, I talk about the fact that when Kathy and I said, we're going to have a non-negotiable date night, because it wasn't happening. Um, and just even, you know, giving, you know, so I give Kathy 1% of my time. That's, a, you know, a non-negotiable date. During that time, I needed to be as up for that as I was for anybody coming into my office or anytime I was speaking, anytime I was writing, anytime I was doing anything, I needed to be be there. And, and uh, I had to learn that. That's a learned trait. Yeah. It's not just a, you know, it, was, it wasn't a learned trait when we first started dating. Oh, no, I was, you know, she got everything. But then as we got in, in our marriage and in all the other things, I, I, that had to, that had to happen. We just had to make that happen. And, and to do that meant there was some discipline in terms of, you know, Kathy began to take veto power over my calendar and my schedule and she wasn't being a big, bad ogre on it, but it was really helpful for us to do that because it then she, she was much more in tune with my kids schedules and our family schedule and, and, uh, than I was. And, you know, that was good. It helped us yeah. overcome some of the negative family patterns. Yeah. Jim Burns is my guest, and his book is Half Serious Fun, and I, I'm a big fan of that idea, and I like the book. And, Jim, talk about replenishing relationships. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, I, I think, and especially us men, I don't know that we have very good deep friendships. Um, you know, you, you and I were talking at the break about a good friend of yours named Bob who, you know, you guys are re, you have replenishing relationships. When you're with each other, you enjoy each other. I have a, a a friend named Tick Long, who you would know, I, know who well. I don't see, I don't see all the time, but when Tick and I are together, we replenish each other. And yeah. there's times when, you know, I'll just call him up and we'll just laugh. I mean, or whatever, but there's also times when, you know, when I've shared some of my deepest uh, hurts or, or my dreams or my, whatever it might be. And I know that I have a person who replenishes me. I call them VIPs, very inspirational people. We all have VDPs, very draining people. 
But I think we have to lean into the VIP. So, you know, today, 21 years, we've been meeting on Tuesday, me and these guys, and we are replenishing relationship people to each other. And that has been wonderful. I think we we have to lean into that and create those. And I don't think that, uh, like I said, I don't think men do a very good job. But I don't think I, – I think, again, we get too busy – and in in our busyness, we we miss the fact that no, it's all about what I call deep friendships. Um, and and I love you know I have a quote in there by C.S. Lewis that says friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, "What? Oh, you too? Uh, oh, I thought I was the only one." You know, and you have those kinds of friendships when you have those. And I feel pretty blessed because I feel like I have a lot of those kind of people. But I also know not to, you know, say I'm doing it all right, but I also know that I've really sought out those kind of people. And, you know, that's that's been incredible. And I think we have to sometimes are their peers, sometimes they're mentors, sometimes we're mentoring others. And when we do that, then that's a replenishing relationship doesn't happen in one meeting. It happens over years and years and years. Yeah, Jim, Jim when you talk about serious fun, I'm just thinking of. Uh, earlier in the conversation, your daughter calls you up and says, Dad, let's go watch the sunset. And that's a 20-minute yeah. intense moment where the sun drops and the glow is there. And then she says, let's go grab some food. Bring your wallet. Right. Right. And I'm thinking right. to myself, that, to me, Jim, sounds like serious fun. You no, know, it, it is. But the and, concept and, of, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go. The concept of serious fun can sound in, a little intimidating to people. What do you mean? Do yeah. I have to go bungee cord jumping? What is it? What does serious fun mean? And I think what you described with your daughter is very serious fun. Yeah, you're you're right. And you know, there was that same daughter. Uh, we used to do breakfast once a week in the morning um, when she was going to uh, school, high school. Isn't that usually uh, when people yeah. eat breakfast? Exactly. In the morning. So we would do that in the. <laughs> it's amazing. You know what? Yeah. As you get older, some people eat breakfast at night too. But <laughs> that's, that's true. another story. Just to I'm get it out of the yet. way, right? <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, I'm not there. But I, yeah. I think that was my parents. I think they did that. But anyway, with her, there were times when I'd have that, and I really wanted to connect. And we would talk about snowboarding. Uh, we would talk about boys. We would talk about. I wanted her to talk about deep, you know, principles, and we never got there. And then I would say to my wife, well, we didn't really get to what my agenda was. She goes, your agenda was to hang out with her. Hmm. And she had fun doing that. And she enjoyed it. So, you, And she got to have a dad who was listening to her talk about snowboarding. And what I find is that that was, you know, long term, that's incredibly fun. But every time you do something like that, you know, it's not just this amazing bonding moment. But you do it. And you keep doing it over and over again. And, that, and, and that's right. Find out what they're especially with like your kids or your spouse, find out what, what's their fun factor because their fun factor is oftentimes not your fun factor. Yeah. Jim, uh, the book I love, Have Serious Fun and 12 Other Principles to Make Each Day Count. Uh, what, do you, what do you hope readers walk away with as a result of this? Well, you know what? It's a very different book for me because I write on marriage, I write on parenting, and this is a book much more on, on life, which does relate to our relationships. I hope that they find a principle that can help them really have their life count in a new way, tweak something in their life, um, pass it along, and uh, realize how important legacy is. Because I write from the point of having cancer and could have died, I think this is, for me, a, a legacy book. And, you know, to quote Monty Python, I'm not dead yet, but, you know, it is a legacy book. Mm -hmm. And I think people have to get serious about their legacy. And I don't want them to wait until they're, you know, 85 and on their deathbed. I want them to think legacy now, whatever their age is. And uh, so I have some high hopes for this book. I really yeah. do. Yeah. 
Love having you on, and it's really nice to hear your voice and to talk to you again. Thank you so much for doing the show. Great to be with you. Yeah. Take care. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Jim, Jim Burns has been my guest. And again, his book is Have Serious Fun and 12 Other Principles to Make Each Day Count. And I'm just hearing what's on your heart, and I know that you have stress in your life, and there's some anxiety, and there's uncertainty, but God is the solid rock. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He's where we go for our comfort and our hope. And upon his word, do we put our hearts and surrender to him. And we just uh, love his word, and we love Jesus, and we're so grateful that we could be spending this time with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I want to just say thanks to all my guests today. It was really a wonderful show. If you missed any of it, please head over to MyFaithRadio.com. Look over the guests. You can see who I had on today. You can hear all of these interviews right from the start. And if you're listening tonight on podcast, I hope you had a wonderful day, and I hope you have a great night's sleep. As you put your head on the pillow, just be confident that God is working out His plan in your life. Have a great night, everyone. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.